0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Tonight reviewing a Netflix TV show. Yes, a Netflix show, ladies and gentlemen, and I am your host, the Mandata Reporter, and frankly I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Now normally when we do these reviews, I am joined by the one and only the admitted of the Robert Winfrey. Uh, however, he did not uh succumb to the mass popularity that is a uh, full house. He decided to skip this one, that is his right. We, uh, as the vice president of the Radalism Broadcasting uh, Network, Robert Woodley has a lot of responsibilities, and sometimes he he just can't he just can't do it. So instead, I have gone to the Wayback Machine, and I have dug up your friend in mine, the Funky Pugilist. His name is Mister Pat Patrick Mullen, and he is bringing out his alter ego, Totally Eighties Pat Mullen. Welcome to the show, Totally Eighties Pat Mullen.
2: Thanks Mark, I've got my VCR all programmed and set to record tonight's episode of Dallas. <laughs> You're
1: going to finally find out shot JR on
2: tape. I just picked up the new cassette tape by Duran Duran.
1: <laughs> oh, goodness. Something happened though. I think they shot JR or something. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Um, we are, as I said before, we are reviewing Fuller House. Uh Netflix brought Full House out of the uh, out of the garbage pile of television. It's, it's, you know we need a revival here. Netflix has given us a lot of really really good shows. Obviously they brought us the Marvel shows. You have well, you said really really good though. Shut up, you. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got the Marvel shows. We've got every um, Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, Narcos. Um, not everything. You got like one substances. good show out of that whole list. Well, I'm about to name a terrible show. Maybe you'll love it. Uh, I actually made my kids sit and watch the Netflix revival of, live action revival of Richie Rich, which is probably going to be, I don't know if you ever saw this, but it's, uh, it's now my new standard for garbage television. It, it It's just like, if me and you tried to, to do a show, I think it might look like this, you know, on, on a budget of like 20 bucks. It's it, you know it's it did not give me hope that when they when I heard about the Full House revival um, that Fuller House would be any good and I really did attempt to avoid this whole thing but my my Facebook feed gun blew up with the, with mostly girls I have to say mostly girls mostly friends of my wife who I have friended on Facebook and who have not unfriended me because of my constant advertising of my shows. Um, they all were they all were just the weekend shut down, and everybody was watching Fuller House. My wife has yet to watch it, but she was mad at me, mad at me, Patrick Mullen, that I watched it before she got a chance to after I had said anyone that watches Fuller House is a goddamn retard. Well, I retract those statements, ladies and gentlemen. I was wrong. Fuller House ended up being a lot better than it had any right to be, and uh but a man who thought, you know, could not wait for this thing. They advertised it way back, and it was in the periodicals, and they talked about, oh, we're bringing back Full House. Patrick Mullen, you were excited for this thing as soon as you heard about it. So uh, just, just sort of open up here. Let's open up this show with you talking about your love for Full House. Where did it come from, and what did you think when you thought, when, when you heard that they were coming back with a 2.0 version of Full House? Well, you know, it, it's funny oh, you know, because
2: it's funny. Full House and I well, are born
1: in the same year. year.
2: So go ahead and look it up and do so your homework and you'll figure out I'm how old totally 80's, old, 80s Patrick Mullen, 80's Mullen really is. is. And it was just that constant, it was, just that it, constant it was that constant show, was, show was, that I grew up, up with through my, through my childhood that shouldn't have been a success, but it was based around the premise where it started off as TV's version of Three Men and a Baby. And it evolved into something more that had each of these characters with their individual traits and lives and and quirks and problems and dilemmas, but ultimately revolved around the family unit staying together and holding things and solving problems together and not always necessarily solving the problem, but coming to an understanding that that problem couldn't be solved by them. And they were just going to have to hope for the best, which is a little more realistic than full house ever really gets credit for, for being. And it I think it's also one of those things where because it was such... I don't want to say it was like a cult hit because it had a legitimate large following for years. So it's not the same as a cult hit in that vein of like a uh, a show that maybe lasted one year but has such a devoted following like a Firefly. But it was one of those shows where everybody just always tuned in and made it happen. And it was something everybody knew and loved and grew up with and always had a soft spot for, at least in my age group for the most part. And the one thing that I think bothered everybody is you never really got a legitimate finale of that series. The original series ended its run in 1995. It had a a two-part, you know, one-hour finale where uh, the character, Michelle, that made Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen famous, damn you, uh, you know, hit her head and got amnesia, and they weren't sure whether or not she would recover her memory And basically ended up with them kind of with the happy ending of she did get her memory back and the family will always stay together to help each other out. They got offered a deal to come on to the WB the following year, which at the time was not fully nationally syndicated. Um, The WB Warner brothers network, which now is of course half of the CW network uh, was getting most of its syndication through WGN based out of Chicago. So because of that, John Stamos was the first one who was the main star of the show and really the draw for you know women and he was even in his you know 30s and even now the guy's still a freaking teen idol so but he was the first one to say I'm really not interested in doing a carry on where it's not going to be national syndication and we're going to have to go try to sell the show in markets and once that happened really the rest of the cast followed suit and so you never got that end you know that end that real true end of the show. And most of the most of the actors went on to do other things. Some more prevalent than others. You know, Stamos has always kept pretty busy and always has something going on. Bob Saget went back to his very filthy stand-up comedy roots. Where if you only knew him as Danny Tanner, boy, were you in for a surprise when you saw him after. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, oh, his his big stand-up post post Full House was hilarious. And frightening all at the same time. I mean, he really does say, "If you were expecting Danny Taylor, for are you and for a fucking surprise."
2: Yeah, I like. And to whoever wants to question Bob Saget's acting range, please <laughs> listen to any one of his stand-up specials and watch him play Danny Tanner on Full House. That's range, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I, I guess really of the two, the most the ones that kept acting the most, obviously, besides the Olsen twins. Where John Stamos and his on-screen wife Lori Loughlin, who always seemed to find themselves in some kind of series or uh, you know television movies, constantly, but everybody else kind of went their own ways. But you never had them, with the exception of those two, really, in a big high-profile role back on TV. Although they remained fan favorites. I was going to
1: say. So this was was kind of. Uh, Candace Cameron did a lot of television. She remained very active. You
2: know, she did certain things. I don't remember her in a ton. She would do an occasional guest spot here or there. The one, the one thing I remember her doing was a movie where Fred Savage was her boyfriend who beat and eventually murdered her, which was really, really dark for somebody who grew up on The Wonder Years in Full House.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's she's one of those. She's one of those like, Val- Valerie Bertinelli, you know, who basically made a made a career to the point where Family Guy made a joke about it, where she did like a thousand movies. That, you know, that, that only appeared on like one network and she was always being beaten in them. Ken's camera yeah. is something, something similar where she, she did a lot of television. She, she was very, very busy. She also took a hiatus from acting to focus on her family. So I would say most people who came out of it, this isn't one of those, you know, Star Wars experiences where, you know, someone comes out of it and it completely ruined their acting career. Um, no, and, and then come you come have Jodie Sweetin. Well, you know, Jody Sweeten had other problems. We'll talk about that.
2: But but this is this was when this was announced. There was a chance for all of us fans of Full House to kind of take a breath and go, "Man, this would be a lot of fun to see this come back," because we're always seeing we're in the we're in the era of remakes where nobody has an original idea anymore. So what they do is they take a concept that worked in the past with a, a fan following and they set it in the present day with new actors and a new setting and basically just mirror the show in kind of name and some of the premise only. And it, it pisses a lot of people off because – why do you need to remake Perfect Strangers and make Balky instead of being from somewhere in the Middle East like Mipos? You have to make him, you know, Asian to reflect some type of modern day issue or whatever. That's first of all, nobody wants to see anybody but Bronson Pinchot play Balky. Second of all, you're taking the fun out of it. It's not meant to be politically accurate or redeem. It's meant to be funny and just stupid fun that you can laugh at for 22 minutes out of a half an hour. Okay. And so we've seen those with movies, television, all these things revisited. Instead of doing that, what they did here was they tried to take a premise of a show that people loved and and enjoyed and have fond memories of, and instead of reinventing it and casting new people, they decided to do basically a sequel, inverting the premise to a certain extent, and being, I don't want to say faithful because that's the wrong word, but being uh, kind to the original show and the original cast and actors, and kind to the fan base that made it so successful to the point where, when it was canceled, it was still number twenty five in the Nielsen ratings.
1: So, one one of the things I wanted to bring up was uh, this was the cornerstone of the TGIF um, on ABC, as I as I recall. And I remember, like, you know, I've said many, many times on on a variety of shows, one of my favorite shows of all time is The Wire. Keeping your pants, Pat. Relax a moment. Um, I love The Wire for its gritty realism. Um, you know, I, I enjoy shows that sort of blur that line between fiction and reality. But I think you still have to make, even for someone like me who who likes that sort of thing, you still have to make room in your life for... You know, the absurd you know something that is just pure, unadulterated fantasy, and you know, and comedy has one job it should make you laugh, and I think that's where you know the success of Full House really comes from is you know because people use the words cheesy you know or overacted or whatever, but it ultimately it made people laugh and was entertaining. you know Dave Goulier was funny on the show, John Stamos was funny on the show. Uh, you know the kids were legitimately funny on the show, and that's where the success of Fuller House comes from. So let's go ahead and make that transition. Uh, going into it, I I was a little first of all, like I said, I, I wasn't necessarily interested in watching uh, watching it originally, and then, you know Pat sort of talked me into it, and I'm I'm glad I did now. Because I was very afraid that what was going to happen here was I didn't realize that it was going to just be focusing on DJ uh, Stephanie and good old Kimmy uh, and and their progeny. Uh, I thought it was going to be yet another, you know, we're going to have Danny and Uncle Jesse and everybody back in there again. And, you know, and you do in little bits and pieces, but I thought they were the focus of the show. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, not again with this. You know, they've had their time. And it's funny because that's the first show is this reunion where you get everybody on there and um it's just it's just one literally one introduction after another. It was like the opening ECW tag team medley. You know teacher <laughs> 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 she's left. Everyone cheers for five minutes and then, you know, and then someone comes in after that and you know and then they're all sitting at a table and you're a good twenty minutes into it before a plot develops. Um and then uh the show starts to find its legs and, and its rhythm, its identity and about the third episode. Uh, so just just talking about the first episode. And we're gonna we're gonna cover the whole uh, thirteen episodes here tonight instead of breaking this over a couple of shows. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the whole run here. So it feels like I'm rushing. That's that's kind of why. But uh, let's talk about that first show for a moment. Um, I uh, it was fun to see the characters back because I hadn't you know like who the hell keeps up with any of these people. Um, like I saw Bob Saget do his thing a little ways back, but it's been a while since I've seen him since, except for maybe his roast on Comedy Central. So it was fun to see the characters kind of come in, but that's all they do for about 20 minutes. Like I said, is just get introduced and interact, and it's a little forced. It's a little hackneyed. Though so I thought the the high point of that episode was the, it was actually addressing the elephant in the room, which is where's Michelle, and they go, oh, she's oh, running her fashion fire. <laughs> and they, all, and they all mug to the camera and break the fourth wall. It, it, it's something that happens throughout the series periodically. I mean, we're not talking Deadpool here, but they occasionally will break the fourth wall and uh, and do a Michelle bit or, or something like that, or acknowledge the previous show, uh, Full House. And it's funny when they do it. It, it doesn't feel forced. It feels natural. And if nothing else, and maybe it's I've gotten older and I, I laugh at things more than, than you know howl at the moon like I used to, but I giggled. Vision <laughs> accomplished. Let's talk, about, uh, let, let, let's talk about that for a bit. What did you think of the very first episode with uh, everybody sort of running into, into view of the camera?
2: The first episode was a no-win scenario in a couple of ways because you're having to not only try to set this new premise for the new show, but you have this, you know, prior eight seasons of history and the 21 years in between that time to acknowledge what's gone on exactly. So you're taking on a very tall order for a show that's meant to be roughly 30 minutes per episode. And the pilot episode of a show, when you watch it back, is always the roughest one to get through, really no matter what it is most often. Um, Even if I break out my Full House Season 1 DVD, And I watched our very first show, The Name of That Pilot. That pilot takes some getting used to, too. And it's kind of the low point of the series in a lot of ways. But it has to be that way. And I think people who write shows off at the pilot aren't always being a fair critic of what's going on unless it's absolutely awful. Uh, And there's, to me, there's enough in this. If you are any pseudo-familiarity with Full House in you... In addition to being open to the new show, I think it, I think it, it takes on a very tall task and does an okay job of trying to set everything up. And, you know, you were the one to point out, it really takes about 20 to 25 minutes into the episode to actually get to the point of what the new show is. Um, But I, I, you know, this was a show that was pretty much developed for fans of the original series because they felt like the market of those was strong enough that you would hook those people in in addition to the majority of people of that age group that grew up and loved the show now have kids and are looking for not necessarily just a family friendly show but a show they can watch together with their kids which is kind of hard to do these days and Mark you're a parent you you know that Finding bonding time gets progressively harder each generation because of how things move like technology where now you'll have your kids sitting in the same room with you, and instead of talking to you, they'll send you a text message or send you a Skype message on an iPad.
1: And I think that was kind of the goal uh, behind this. Okay, since you brought it up, let me say one of the pet peeves I have in life, and I have yelled at people on Facebook for this, is that if you live in the same house, you should not be communicating through Facebook. Now, it's one thing, like, I send my wife a recipe or an article about teaching and say, hey, check this out, because I want her to read the article or I want her to see the recipe and feed my fat ass. Uh, But if you are having a legit argument, (laughs) okay, if you are having some sort of problem in your relationship, I shouldn't see in your Facebook feed, blah, 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 next person, oh, yeah, well, it's because of blah, blah. No, you're in the same freaking house. Go talk to one another and turn off the damn computer.
2: Uh, don't you know you're not going to get any argument from from me out of that. But again, I think part of the the mentality behind Netflix's idea to go ahead with this, and and I know John Stamos was EPing it too, and kind of had a lot to sell on that. I think that's one of the strengths of what this show is marketed for, because hmm. you you have a joining of the past generation of characters who these people have become emotionally attached to, and the new characters who are more relatable to you know, the kids who are going to be likely watching the show with the parents if that's such a case. Or if you're just a crazy loner like me who grew up and loved the show, you'll watch it yourself and enjoy it either way. But um, I, I think a lot of that has to do with it. and I think it's a strong point. But again, you have to spend that time establishing what's going on exactly. And it's a very, very hard uphill battle to do that. And I don't think they do a great job with it. I think they do an admirable job with it. They try. There's effort there. I think it absolutely takes too long for the actual premise of the show to develop. But I think yeah. they really want to try to win over those you know, people looking for a taste of nostalgia. And they spent a lot of time on the past characters like Danny, Joey, Jesse, Rebecca, who are not going to be the regular fixtures on the show. And I think they did that to try to win over that audience rather than immediately push all those characters out and people say, wait, Stamos isn't in this a
1: lot? No, I'm not watching. Yeah, you make a very good point, because here's the thing. You're not really going to draw people in necessarily with st- starting off with DJ, Stephanie, and Kimmy, especially the Kimmy character. Um, you know, from what she was in the first series to what she is in this series, which we'll address uh, in a few minutes, but you really you, you you gotta hook people with uh, with John Stamos, Bob Saget, and Dave and Dave Coulier, and to to a lesser degree Rebecca uh, Rebecca Waplin is that her name? Donaldson well Donaldson Kitsopoulos, okay, um, Jesse's wife. So you know b- those are the people who who are you know your magnets, but because the show isn't based around them. You know, so you got to throw them out there, give them a, a lot of camera time because you're not going to see them again for a while. But that's that was sort of the bait to get people in. I just one thing, one of the things you said that I want to address really quick is uh, I talk about this on on the, these two elements a lot, and that is one that the long tail, and that is you know it used to be uh, large swaths of the populace focusing on very 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 few lanes of entertainment. You know. They used to just be the radio and the family sitting around the radio, if you can, you know, even picture that. then there were the three national uh, television networks. And really what people saw was most of the nation sort of were watching the same things uh, at the same time. In the the 21st century with the Internet, you know, and uh, and the advent of streaming media, what you have are very small niche markets that go on ad infinitum.
2: So would you say would you say it's almost like whatever happened to predictability, Milkman, the Paperboy, and the evening TV? <laughs>
1: yeah, I've been asking myself that question all day. As a matter of fact, um, but yeah, you you have a lot of you have an infinite amount of niche markets now, and one of those markets is that you know eighties or nineties nostalgia act. Um, the other thing is Netflix is in the business now of, of new content. And they have to keep churning things out because they because of, they they they're not going to um, they're only going to go so far on just you know the quote unquote rental recycled programming
2: Recycle.
1: yeah right they they got to create new content and I, I say this to you guys offline in our in our chat and I'll and I'll say it now. Intellectual property and licenses is always the way to go if you want the biggest audience you can find. Because you never know with an original idea if you're gonna hit it out of the park or not. And it's a huge gamble. However, nine out of ten times if you can take something that people already knew and already have an affection for that's already built in, you're probably nine out of ten times gonna have a hit on your hands. So Netflix goes to Marvel and they you know and they take you know, Richie Rich and Full House and you know and all and hit things movies. that they the, the, the Kid
2: markets. So you look at stuff, cartoons they've done like Dawn of the Croods and Turbo and all this stuff.
1: And all this stuff. Right. You, what you have there is all licenses and intellectual properties that people know and people like and already have a built-in audience. And voila, you have a success. So it's not hard to imagine that among, not among the critics, the critics hate this show, <laughs> but um, we're talking we're talking one of the lowest-rated shows of the year on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but the fans love it. You know, a lot of we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Uh we're going into some of the rotten tomatoes and IMDB scores. Um finishing up with the first episode, getting back to that and establishing like, okay, here's the old guard. Now let's transition to the new guard. Um, very, very fast you have DJ sort of having a meltdown and basically saying, you know, like, Oh, I'll try to do it on my own. What what so people understand what we're talking about. If you haven't seen it, so I don't know why you're listening to this then. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh <laughs> Much like the first series, DJ uh has kids, was married, it is now widowed, the father has died, uh, tragically. Um he was a firefighter. And uh and his name was Fuller he hence the full name Fuller House. House. Get it. it. Um, so what you have here is DJ overwhelmed with three children. She hasn't she has a what appears to be a three to six month old baby. Um and she's got uh Two, uh, two other sons, so she's got three sons all together, and she's overwhelmed, and what's happening here is that everyone is moving to L.A., moving out of the house, et cetera, and what they decide is that Kimmy and Stephanie are going to stay in the house with her and help her raise her kids, um, and that uh, uh, Danny Tanner is not going to sell the house anymore and let them live there, and he goes off to Los Angeles, Jesse and Rebecca go off to Los Angeles, and Dave Kulia goes off to Vegas, leaving, the, leaving those three with the children in the house. And that's, that's episode one. Um, real quick, when, what were some of your thoughts about, sort of transitioning to the new cast, what were some of your thoughts about, uh, you know, the focusing around DJ and the whole Candace Cameron being able to shoulder this show? Because a lot, again, a lot of this is personality, uh, you know, personality-driven. You know, you identify with Danny. You like Danny. Dan- you know, Danny was everyone's dad. And uncle Jesse, As he says later on in the series, he's everyone's uncle. Um, if if Candace Cameron's not really able to sort of capture that um, and kind of carry the show on its shoulders, it's, it isn't going to be very successful. So I was curious as what your thoughts of uh, this actress, this character sort of being the centerpiece of the show.
2: I think the thing that, I I think think the thing that is her strength here is her that she is a mom in real life. She... Did feel at times overwhelmed because her husband, for those who don't know, is Valerie Bore, who is a professional hockey player and constantly on the road and traveling and not at home going away games until the season was over and That's why she cut down on her acting career she she eventually became kind of more public, and for the past few years she's been a guest host on the view or not a guest host, but a regular host, I should say. But, you know, she's but, kind of you know, molded you know, herself into gonna, very much a real-life uh, version of Danny uh, Tanner, uh, Tanner where she's a very she's a very normal, normal, normal mom who mom, people can relate to and be their, their mom in their to a point or at least who they wanted want their, mom want their mom to be. And I think because and she's and not biting off... It's such a big part, or such a big departure, departure from herself. She grounds herself she in the part well enough to me, in the, at least in the get-go, to keep
1: me interested. Um, anything left on the first episode? Uh, I, again, it, it it
2: moves
1: it moves almost painfully quickly uh, when it, it sort of stops at a halt to give you sort of time to recognize that this is the DJ show. And it, you know, and it's her struggles that are going to that are going to to uh to push this thing. Um was, you know, Stephanie uh was fun, you Oops. know, doing the doing Oops. the <laughs> I was gonna bring that up later. But um as the show progresses is what I noticed today, as a matter of fact. But yes, Stephanie Sweeten uh matured quite greatly <laughs> over the years. Um Actually, before we start talking about the first episode, one thing I want to bring up is I used to hate the Kimmy Gibbler character. She was she was kind of the Urkel of the show, and I hate I hate that sort of nosy, awkward, ridiculous neighbor. Who if anyone really acted this way, you'd call the cops on them. Uh, frequently. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he and she and she even reprises a lot of those old. Uh, a lot of those old quirks right in the very first episode, like putting your feet on the table and all of that. And it's like, oh, your feet sink. And I'm like, oh, my God, is this what I'm in for for 13 episodes? Well, no, because Kimmy Gibbler actually turns into uh, a hell of a performance throughout the rest of the series. It doesn't start off well, but about episode three, things start to pick up steam for almost the entire cast. But uh, I just your, your initial impressions of uh, Stephanie and Kimmy there, Because, again, I thought Stephanie was fine. uh, But Kimmy almost instantly grates on you. And you're like, oh, my God, no change from when she was a kid. And then, like I said, two or three episodes, uh, one or two episodes later, she becomes a a fully formed human being that actually works in the show, I thought.
2: If there's a weak link character from the first series, first series, You can point to Stephanie, because as soon as the Olsen twins got old enough to walk and deliver lines and be cute, Stephanie became not just your classic TV middle child, but your real-life middle child, where she's not the oldest and dating and doing all that interesting stuff first. She's not the young cute one spouting off the funny catchphrases anymore. She's the annoying middle child who doesn't have anything good going on, and her main plot lines involve her whining about something.
1: Right, sort of the, uh, what is it, uh, Jan Jan Brady of the bus? Yes,
2: exactly. Yes,
1: yes. So that's who she is, and
2: at least in the first episode, her character does not really retain any of those traits. And show that you can grow up out of that eventually because had she because kept that same exact character going into the new, series,
1: the new series,
2: that may have been enough to drive, me off. Enough to drive me off. <laughs>
1: yeah. Thankfully, they're not reprising their childhood characters. No matter how low-covered yeah. shirts were. <laughs> um, give, me, uh, give me 30 seconds here on Kimmy Gibbler. Andrea Barber and, is fantastic. And uh, fantastic. Did
2: enough of did invoking her old invoking character, invoking character to keep you interested, but then and, as the series progresses, so she does she. It shows a lot of rage as an actress.
1: Yeah. All right, let's get into now out with the old characters and in with the new. We'll talk a little bit about the kids now, uh, because they're, they're, the, they're the big focus of the second episode. Unfortunately, the second episode suffer, suffers from the fact that they have to now catch up from the first episode. The first episode, I don't want to use the word wasted, but the first episode is spent so much time on the reunion, the nostalgia, um, you know, just sort of setting up this world again that not a lot of plot was established. It was just basically DJ's overwhelmed and her sister and her best friend are going to come help her, and that's all you need to know. So the second episode, episode like,
2: episodes one and two of the new two, series two, three, 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 are basically a rehash of the original series pilot, because this plot, at least revolving around the kids, is taken almost directly from the first episode of Full House.
1: Uh, The girls moving into the same room? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is why I want to talk about uh, Kimmy Gibbler and and her daughter, and then her estranged husband, who I have a lot of thoughts on, <laughs> so um, and then we get to DJ's kids in a second, but uh, here's where we get to know a little bit more about what happened with Kimmy and her life, and um, I mean, we met the daughter, I think, and in the, in the husband in the first episode, but you get to see a Very little bit more of them in the second. Yeah, they're, they're more established in the second, and they become pivotal, uh, the pivotal characters, especially towards the end as the series continues. Um, so, I'm not a huge fan of her husband, the character at least you know I'm not saying he needed to be a Toto or anything like that, but but gosh not been this kind of community back at least twenty years. that character is however, the daughter, I think is one of the highlights of the series. um I really enjoyed the daughter i I have to say her and uh Michael Campion, who plays the eldest son, did a really great job of not being grating terrible child actors. They, uh, they, they were charming. Um, I thought the episodes that revolved around them weren't the kind of nails on the chalkboard sort of acting where like, you, you, you just want to strangle the character. Um, I actually thought that both of them did a really good job of holding up their ends of the shows when, when the focus was on them, especially Sonny Nicole Bringus who plays Ramona. Uh, you know, whose character is basically uh, try, trying to uh, figure out, you know, her role in this new home. You know, her mother is dragging her into this house with, you know, with these semi-unfamiliar people. You know, and this is all the a whitest family in America. Her... <laughs> the whitest that was a great line. That that I laughed hard at. Uh, for those who missed it, because we're talking over each other. Yeah, she's like, you're making me move, move in with the whitest family in America. And dude, I had to pause, and I was laughing so hard. Um, but I think she she does a really good job of, of portraying a character who is sort of, one, struggling with the, with the breakup of her family, and two, having to move in with this other family that she doesn't know if she's going to fit in with, and she already has sort of a negative relationship with, with the eldest son, and they have a whole arc in their relationship as well. So um, that was an unexpected twist that I, I, I didn't see it coming, and it was... Something I really enjoyed as the series progressed. I, I enjoyed uh, the interactions between her and the mom, her, her and Kimmy. I enjoyed her as a character. Um, hated Ramon. Oh, boy. Fernando. I'm sorry, Fernando. At the end of it, I was, like, sorry, Fernando. Uh, it, I was Your... Ramon, Fernando, Giuseppe, and whatever. They both cleaned um, my pool. It's No big deal. No big deal. Yeah, I hated Fernando. And people enjoy him, and people love him, and they're like, "Oh, he's such a great character." that's fine. Different strokes, you know, move the world as they say. But he was just, first of all, the transition from him from the beginning to the end just seemed like came out of nowhere. Um, it seemed a bit forced. And, and number two, he was just, I mean, he had the same problem as an actor that Elias Harder has, who plays the middle son. And that is, I feel like the director at some point just gave up (laughs) with directing some of the actors and just said, just fucking scream your lines, okay? Scream into the camera with all your might, and it'll be funny because you're a little kid and you're a poppy Hispanic dude, and it'll be hilarious. God bless America. <laughs> to, to
2: be fair to Max, at least in a five-year-old boy who can easily be excited about virtually anything, and him being loud and jumping up and looking for attention kind of makes sense. A Hispanic hairdresser turned Formula One racer or whatever car he races who is a constant cheat on his wife. Why do you need to be so loud and so ethnic? <laughs>
1: Like, 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 I feel like he had a different part. He had a different character, and in the, in the actor is just terrible. <laughs> the director like, I feel
2: like he, he's one of those guys who's a career, like, bit part player, and finally gets an opportunity, and just sees it as something to launch a character he may have come up with on his own in his spare time that he used in, like, some, like, some type of, like improv group, improv. and this is the time to launch improv. that character and make it a brand like Andy Kaufman with Latka.
1: Yeah, or, you know, as you mentioned before, Rossi Joe's Balthy. You know, like, here, when you're on screen, make sure you shove every other actor who's standing around you out of frame and just be fabulous. Chew that, that, that scenery up like you are David Caruso. <laughs> yeah, he's just... It, it, he was, he's the only Muppet on the show. Everybody else is at least somewhat channeling a real person. He went full Muppet on this thing, and he only gets worse as the series continues. It's, and it's so weird, because I like, the, I like the story. I mean, the idea of you know, an estranged husband and wife sort of finding that romantic spark and getting back together and, you know, and, and the doubts of person, about the person's personality and everything was fun. You know, I was interested in how it all got resolved by the end. I just had a really well,
2: stupid it's personality. A well-crafted it's it's a well crafted art so and you know, for and, me and you, you know, we're both big pro wrestling fans like, but neither and, one of us could and, ever stand Ric Flair as a and performer. Or, and it's like the, the whole when when they did the whole, you know, Elizabeth was mine before she was yours thing with him and Randy Savage. It was an interesting storyline and it was really well thought out, but it sucked to me because it
1: was Ric Flair involved. Right. Who's another person who, who, who obviously, wrestlers aren't taking direction for the most part. Um, they are now, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, you know, back when, back in the 90s where they were doing that story with uh, Rick Flair and Randy Savage, you didn't have someone giving the wrestlers, you know, acting direction. You just let their personality, you know, a wrestler's personality, a lot of times if it's successful, is themselves turned up to 20. And unfortunately, uh, the guy playing Ric Flair's personality turned up to 20 is it, it, is kind of like when you wake up in the morning, um, you know, in a, in a you you've slept in an almost pitch black room and someone kicks open the freaking blinds and it's blinding sunlight. You're like, ah, oh, my eyes! You know, like you have to like adjust and you're, you're bumping into the walls and stuff. Well, that's Ric Flair's personality to me. It's just like. Again, he's just gay and fabulous, and, you know, and his penis is right there in your face. It's like, hello, this is all me, folks. Hello. Like, oh, turn it down a bit. Just turn it down a notch. Yeah, you're at about a 10, and you get out of three. Um, So that's that character. <laughs> People listening to the show going, he just compared him to Ric Flair and said something about penis. I don't understand this podcast. All right, moving on. Um. So episode two, like I said, is more of of the family sort of gelling and um, and really the show trying to find its legs. Um, episode three is like I said, where I think things finally uh, finally start to where the show finally starts to find a rhythm. It starts to find a an identity, and the characters are finally allowed to breathe and and sort of experience the show as it were. I, I don't know if people get what I'm talking about here, but you know, when you spend the first two episodes and everything is set up, set up, set up, introducing character, introducing character, and there's not a lot of time for plot, episode three, you finally have a time to tell a story. You know, there's a beginning, a middle and an end to it. And you um, get depth in the characters you, that changes
2: them from who they were from nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety five to, to who they
1: are now. They are. Yeah. We also have a guest appearance by David Coulier, who comes in as the babysitter, um, and does what we were complaining about not ten minutes ago, ten minutes ago. Mm. and fixes it and fixes it right. One of the things that's nice about his appearance is that he he says so what I mean, and I'll say this about the entire show. Actually, I thought the show was a very was an interesting window into modern modern society, and I don't mean that like you know again this is with the Wire. But I, I do feel like for a for a canned laughter sitcom, uh, I I thought that you re- you did though get a sense that this could be real life, you know that they, these were real people dealing with real issues, and even and it doesn't always have to be something very heavy. Dave clearly brought up a very good point. He was like, "I came here to have fun with you kids." and you're all on screens of some sort. You know, I think they're on phones or la- or, or laptops or uh, tablets or whatever, and none of them are interacting with each other or him. And he finally just takes them all, hides them, and, and uh, they end up getting into, like, you know, shooting water guns and silly spring at one another. And it's a bonding moment for the kids uh, with each other, but it's also an opportunity for him to bond with them. But really the whole, the whole thing, it's sort of an editorial on – you know we, that losing that sense of develop, being able to develop person-to-person relationships because we're so caught up in uh, playing on the internet, says the guy doing a podcast.
2: Uh, we, we can, yeah, we're, we can, yeah. But if we're advocating <laughs> for <laughs> people to
1: <laughs> get along, then damn along. it, we're doing it for the right reason. <laughs> I I get a I get a reprieve. I got a wife who's sleeping, and two kids who are sleeping. Who am I supposed to play with right now? I'm playing with you on the internet. So it's all right. But generally speaking, go get out, get fresh air, people. <laughs> For God's sakes. No, but I I like that. I like that the that the show didn't need to hit you over the head with a frying pan with a lot of this stuff. But it took time to sort of address these modern uh, quirks of uh, of our society. Well,
2: you don't need a major that, situation to you know get people, get people interested or make a point. It just has to be something everybody can understand.
1: And I, and, um, I think this is sort of the plight of a lot of parents is, you know, how do you relate to your kids and, you know, and develop, you know, you know, peer to peer, uh, person to person, family relationships when your competition is the internet, you know, and and access to the internet now is so easy that, you know, my, I have a, I have a, almost a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and both of them know how to know how to at least minimally work an electronic device like that. You know, <laughs> my, my son was sick today, and he somewhat knew how to work with the iPad just enough to get Mickey Mouse to play. So uh, Mickey Mouse's Clubhouse. So that's, that's the world we're living in, and, at least, and it took a little time to address that. Um, the other thing is you have the bonding, you have a parallel bonding thing where you have uh, Stephanie... Kimmy and the DJ going out um, on a night on a town and, you know, they see Fernando there and they're picking up men and they're dancing. And then at the end of it, uh, (laughs) you have, you have a dance competition. This was the episode with Macy Gray, by the way. And Macy Gray has the line of the night, probably the one of the best lines of the series where at the end of it, she says, I want, I want a Grammy. What am I doing here? That was again one of those moments where I, 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 defawed. <laughs> I like defawed. I think I was watching it really late at night. I laughed loud enough that I m- might have woken up my wife, but uh, it was it was fun. And it's and again it's fun that the series pokes fun at itself. So um, anything on on that episode where you know, like I we finally have time to breathe and let the characters uh, mingle with each other. You know, without a lot of setup.
2: Well, I think this is the episode, and I might be wrong, but at the end of the episode, you have this moment between DJ and Stephanie, right?
1: Um, yep, yeah, give me a little bit more than that. The uh, the personal revelation?
2: The,
1: uh, no, that's later.
2: Oh, is that later? Okay. But no, I'm, I'm thinking of that. But also in this one... For fans of the original the show... Original show they probably remember that Kimmy and Stephanie were constantly at odds with each other and never got along for anything.
0: For anything. Right. But at least now
2: as adults, they're maturing their the characters where they'll still take little digs at each other here or there, but they can acknowledge that we're adults now. We're both friends and we're moving on. And this episode, probably more than any other episode, you really see them turning into the roles of John Stamos and Dave Coulier in the original series, where you have not a sibling-in-law, but a sibling who is more about partying and going out every night and having fun, trying to transition into the role of a guardian. And the other one who's the best friend of the lead widowed character who is a little bit goofy and strange, but at the same time is feeling those same growing pains and getting a night out together kind of lets them bond over these shared things. And, it, it, it's a development that they didn't really go to in the original series for a while, so it's kind of nice to see them start with that, especially given the history of the characters involved. I think this is good,
1: good as any time to address one of the issues people have with this show. Um, I, I was you were talking about this offline. <laughs> There's a, there are several uh, negative reviews of this show that go something like this isn't a family show. They advocate drinking. And there's their sex, and and later on there'll be a lot of there'll there'll be a lot of man on man and female, and female kissing. Oh boy, where have, where have we gone since Roseanne? Um, but <laughs> you know, I mean, it's look, I'll, I'll skip ahead for a moment and talk about the man on man kiss that happens, and and just say it was funny when it happened. Both all all the actors had fun with it. It wasn't sexual in any way. It was more cartoonish than anything else. Think you know Bugs Bunny sort of, or like in a Pepe Le Pew cartoon. You know, first thing I thought and, of in
2: the head. Yeah,
1: you know, and the, and the character like kissed the cactus or a horse or something. Um, it was it was that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, the two male the two uh, male um, romance uh, char- romantic characters for DJ go in for a kiss, on uh, DJ, DJ dives out of the way and they kiss each other. But people complained about that. But that, 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 that comes later. They also complained a lot about the amount of, uh, quote-unquote, drinking that goes on in this series. This isn't cheers, people. <laughs> this is a handful of episodes where you have, you have someone who, and this is where I was going with this, You know, they could have written DJ as very uptight you know, and unwilling to unwind. And there's a lot of those kinds of characters throughout the history of television, you know, the person that just never lets their hair down. And then when they finally do, they, they're they like a maniac. You know, think something along the lines of Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. You know, he's always up, you know, you know, science, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And then I think they've had him drink in a few episodes where he can't control himself after that. Um, there are even better examples than Sheldon or that sort of thing. But, you know, they made DJ... Uh, a normal human being. You know, she's got responsibilities, and she takes being a mom very seriously and being a vet very seriously, Um, and she's had some shit happen to her recently. But she's not the Borg. You know, she's not an android. And when her sister and her best friend say, hey, you got to let your hair down, hey, look, we have a character who does remember what it's like to go out and have a good time. And this, for some odd reason, is rubbing people the wrong way. Uh, there, there's this, there's the Bachelorette party later on in the series, and then something else. I and mean, you never want to see DJ get out of hand. I mean, all of DJ's mistakes that she makes in the series, she makes quite sober. <laughs> you know? she's, we are talking like she gets into a car and runs over at nun or some shit like that. She, she goes out, she dances, she drinks, she goes home, and she's a little loud, and so are the other two people with her. And then the show ends. That's it. And this, This caused people to write angry reviews on IMDb going, this is not for children. You know what the thing is?
2: I think those people who are doing that, A, have romanticized the original show in their minds, having maybe they watched it during the original run, but never watched its reruns or remember the show as it was. Uh, When, you know, things like in the very first pilot episode, John Stamos has a girl he talks about meeting at a strip club, and she comes to the house to hook up and basically bang him there and it gets put off but the implications are clearly there and stated there you know right. there's a ton of stuff where John Stamos is out trying to pick up broads and brings broads home stuff like that but they don't want to acknowledge that that didn't happen that no this the, you're talking about something else not my show but that's what went on in this one it's a much as you pointed out much more realistic and B, they're they're again they're not doing anything so horrible that real people don't do every day, including good parents and honest people who just need a night out to unwind, get a babysitter and call a cab. You know? I, I mean you're you're a parent You can't tell me there's never been a time where you and Melissa decided, let's have a night of it, and you go out to a nice restaurant, and you throw back a couple drinks and listen to some music and have some fun, and you got somebody watching the kids, and you don't drive under the influence, and if you're going to be under the influence, you call a cab or an Uber, which they even reference Uber in the show, which is a surprise as to how modern it is, but it's correctly referenced in the show, and this is the kind of stuff people get on. And B, I think you've got a lot of people who... Based on Candace Cameron being a very outspoken Christian, they want to challenge anything she does that is not entirely out of the Bible. I myself identify as a Christian, just like Candace. I can't tell you anything she's doing that uh, smites people who believe in God... And, you know, would be so damaging to the cause of how she's representing Christians. Well, A, she's playing a part. She's not actually Candace Cameron. She's DJ Tanner. B, she's done nothing to mock Christianity or make a joke out of it or insult it or anybody who is a a worshiping Christian. So they need to take this holier-than-thou attitude, which unfortunately a lot of Christians have, and transfer it into looking at the positive aspects of the show rather than wanting to condemn it because Jodie Sweetin's outrageous low-cut shirts are there or that Candace Cameron's character has a shot of tequila and dances, not in the provocative
1: way. All right. Since you brought it up, I was I was going to wait until the uh um, I brought it up a few times. You have brought it up a few times. So let me address the boobs in the room. Um, I was going to wait until the Mad Max episode, just two later, but I'll just say it now. I feel like there was also a direction choice and a direction choice that was made in this show, which is, hey, if the action gets a little low or, or it gets a little dialogue heavy, just square in on Jodie Sweetin's boobs and make sure she's dressed in something that shows them proper. That is a constant thing throughout this, and I noticed it very early on because. I don't know about you, but I don't sleep fully dressed, and I surely shit don't come to the breakfast table in you know in my work outfit. Now, granted, my work outfit is nurse skivvies, but that's a whole other situation. The point is, I don't come, <laughs> I don't come fully dressed, you know, head in, nails done, you know, <laughs> and in my work clothing at, at the breakfast table with nowhere to go. And it is established early on that she was a touring DJ, and then when she stopped doing music to do this. She had no other – there was nothing for her to do. She was basically staying at home and, you know, watching the baby and just helping DJ out where, wherever she could. Um, they make, and and that's, that's a constant point of reference throughout the series that she has no money now. Um, but the point of it is she shows up to breakfast, and she's wearing this thing, and it's just like if it had been in 3D, your boobs would have knocked your eyes out.
3: I'm like, what the fuck? Is,
1: why would you dress her that way? You know, have her. You know, come to the breakfast table. You wear your pajama bottoms and a t-shirt or some shit. You know, and which is how she showed up in the first episode, pants and a t-shirt. But every episode since then, like it was, it, it was like the uh, the costume people must have been like, Jody Sweet, no, we have to dress you in all these crazy outfits. And I'm not saying she's wearing she looks like a clown or anything, but it's it's, it's you look at it. it yeah, Kimmy had had a look. You know, she's wearing scarves that are that are like pizza or ice cream or something. Bacon so and eggs. Very bacon and eggs. She had a very specific look to her. Um, you know, the kids look like modern kids. The the, the middle the middle child always looks like he's a Baptist preacher in some of these episodes. But you know, whatever. That's his look. He's a nerd kid. <laughs> um, and then you know, and Candace Cameron looks like you know, forty year old woman. Great, that's what she is. And then they have Jodie Sweetin, who looks like, you know, who, who runs the gamut where she's wearing, you know, like, sort of low-cut shirts and, you know, and low-cut dresses, things that are just constantly showing off her chest. And I was just like, did, was that a was that choice, maybe? Or is this where the director was going with this? I was like, hey, we don't know about if this show is going to sell very well. So you know what's going to be a great selling point? Jodie Sweetin's tits. <laughs> That's what we'll name the show. Fuller House. Jodie Sweetin featuring Jodie Sweetin's tits and Candace Cameron all right, I'm not going to complain about it, but I'm not going to not, you know, I can't not talk about it either. It was a, it was a feature of the show. You know, we've got, we've got a family, a dog, and boobs. That's what's going on in the show.
2: I, I mean, to, you know, we talked about, you know, people who are unsure of how things have been. Jodie Sweetin has not really acted much since the demise of Full House. She did an odd episode of a TV show here or there. Like, I remember her on Party of Five, I think it was one time. Uh, an episode of the short-lived, all too short-lived, Lawrence Brothers Vehicle, Brotherly Love. Uh, and then kind of disappeared and had a lot of unfortunate personal issues that arose in her life. Um, like many of us have at certain points. Um, drug addiction and some bad marriages. And she she's pulled herself together and credit to her. But I think there may have been a thought process somewhere that I don't know if she can act or not anymore. What does she bring to the table? And then they went to a casting session with her, and they managed to see what she had to bring to the table. And they said, well, there's an old adage to hide the negatives and spotlight the positives, as Paul Heyman would say when he talked about ECW's production values. And they decided that what she brought to the table was uh, Hello Cleveland, and they just were going to ride it full blast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that this thing got renewed for a second season, and I'm hoping they actually <laughs> they not to not dress her down or anything, but you know just i hope they realize the girl- the girl can carry her part just fine she can interact with the characters believably we we, we don't need to be hello i'm i'm stephanie tanner and you know and just throws her boots right out on the table you know there we are folks that's what i that's what's going on here um <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about her when we get to, you know, her big reveal when we get to that episode, which is uh, coming up shortly. But before that, we have one that focuses on the kids again. Um, we have Ramona, who is, the, this is episode four, The Not-So-Great Escape. Uh, we have two things going on in this episode that I really liked. Um, you have this bit where Ramona is adjusting to being in a new school and, you know, a new poor girl. Her parents are broken up. She's moved into this house with the, you know, with with, with these uh, very white people. White, uh, white. <laughs> white, whitest family in America. Um, and so she, there's a lot of ad- readjusting going on for her. And then on top of that, she's got to go to a new school and meet new friends. And she's just about had it. So <laughs> she, uh, she, she gets uh, Jackson, who is the eldest boy, to uh, create a diversion for her to escape from the school. Uh, it's one of those things where uh, there's a lot of a lot of time uh, putting those two together and building a relationship between them, uh, but it leads to something that I thought was was great, which was uh, you have in Kimmy Gibbler a character who recognizes that her child is struggling and doesn't want to pile on. And so her, so she chooses to not punish the child, even when she does something ridiculous, which is, you know, to get herself suspended from school. And she does it in the presence of DJ, who, uh, uh, you know, isn't, you know, the, the, her kids are already pretty well adjusted to what's going on. The only the only minor switch was uh, the introduction of Kimmy and, and Stephanie. But regardless of all of that, she still says, nope, you know, Jackson did a bad thing. Jackson needs to be punished in the following ways, and that's the that there's no discussion. And so you have a conflict of one ideologies and two, you know, between these two characters who are best friends about how to deal with their kids. Now, now in real life, this is sort of the thing that usually ends in gunfire. You know, who are you to tell me how to raise my kids? <laughs> <Bang>. <laughs> Maybe in Florida. Maybe. But um, but I thought it was I I, I won we do live in a world where people will deal with their children the way Kimmy does, you know, with bribery, you know, with coddling. Um, They want to be their children's friend. And I thought it was an interesting way of looking at that issue with, again, without smashing you over the head with a chair. Um, And the same thing with how DJ approaches it, which is she isn't lecturing in any kind of way. It's more of, you can't do that. You can't not punish your kid while I'm punishing mine. You're going to set this whole house into disarray. Um, So just some quick thoughts here about uh, the bonding of Ramona and Jackson and then, you know, this uh, interaction between Kimmy and and DJ. Having been
2: someone who had a surrogate third sibling relationship, Had they really beat it up and tried to make these two resent each other for so long, it wouldn't have worked. It would have become very tiresome very fast, at least to a high level. But seeing these little bonding moments happen early is a very realistic portrayal of how that actually happens. And, And again, we talk about trying to mature these characters from who they were to who they are now. DJ still being the DJ voice of reason makes, be- sense. makes sense. Kimmy still being Kim kind still of the be- the goofy, nonchalant one makes sense. But you're going to evolve at a certain point as a person in those respects. And I think we see that with Kimmy with a little bit of encouragement almost from DJ, not necessarily heavy-handedness. And, and it's a fun nod back to who they were when they were younger, while showing them, again, as people who they are now and having to adjust to the real world and, and a, a very real perspective of a situation that could occur where, you know, they're in a situation where one kid is having a real rough go of it. The other's pretty well adjusted. The other one makes a gesture to help that one out. Of course, that gesture is something they shouldn't have been doing, but it's done anyway. And Kimmy's in the rock and a hard place situation where she has this poor child who is, taken away from everything she knows while her parents are split up and in this new environment, which I've been in and it's not enviable and it's not enviable for the parent either because they don't know how to really punish the kid because haven't they gone through enough already? And again, right. this show makes sense by not going through these huge, massive things where no, their their father was not killed in Vietnam uh, by a grenade while trying to save his entire infantry. It's very real situations that happen every day that, they're just presenting a perspective of and trying to play out the full Monty of it so you can see things and make it something, again, everybody can
1: understand. And that's the show's strength to me. Yep. Um, I think this is the best time to really address the Kimmy character. Something I started to say at the beginning, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. And that is uh, in the original show, like I said, she was just a clown. She was Urkel. Uh, but she, in, in this one, I really like her as a character because she's not a clown as such, but she's more uh, spunky. You know, she's she's got kind of a, a fun uh, air to her. Um, not necessarily devil-may-care. Um, she obviously somewhat knows how to take care of herself. She runs a business that appears to be to a degree successful. Um, you know, she's not a complete airhead. She's not a dummy. Um, but she does have, you know, where, where DJ is sort of missing that sort of zest for life. Kimmy has it in spades, and sometimes in having a zest for life, you are blind to things that you know that you should be responsible for, um, and vice versa. You know, when you when you're that stickler, that everything, you know, when you're that type A personality, sometimes you forget that life is life is to be lived, um, and, and you got to find some middle ground between those two places. So I like that about her character that they that they. They evolved her from the clown she was in, in the first series and made her more, um, more, more of a, a spunky character uh, who, lo- who loves life but sometimes has an issue with how to be a grown-up um, and, and sort of struggles with that, struggles with her passions. Uh, And I think Andrea Barber really captured that well. I don't, you know, she hasn't done a whole lot of anything else. I looked on our Wikipedia page, and, you know, and and I I spoke, well, she hasn't done anything, and I heard my voice echo. That's how little she's done. But, um, eh. But uh, did did you get the whole echo thing? Not this time. Uh, All right, then. But, no, I I think Andrea Barber does a really, really good – uh, job of capturing the essence of that character and, and giving giving it some some dimension. And and that's and, and this episode is where you'd really start to see that. Um, anything else there? If not, I want to get to uh, uh we're not we're not gonna do all of these episode by episode. I want to start talking in bigger themes in a few minutes. But the first couple of episodes needed some some dissection. So uh I want to I want to talk about uh this next one real quick because it there there's, there's a reveal of Stephanie that deserves some conversation but anything else about uh about the the not so great escape and Kimmy Gibbler and all that no no okay so uh episode 5 we have a friend that comes along and takes Stephanie to Coachella <laughs> and uh Here, this 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 episode very much focuses on uh, Stephanie and her relationship with the boys versus her her party girl former life and where she stands and what she wants and how she feels and I'll and I'll just get right to the big reveal at the end. Uh, You know, it's set up where uh, the middle child Max has got a recital and he's afraid and she tries to give him some words of encouragement and. Because she ends up in Coachella, she's not able to be there for him, and she does something very fun and and, and very very nice. She put, she talks to him while while she's on stage at Coachella. Um, she has a really funny line there. You know you know he has him play his trombone song, and and then she goes like, hey everyone, cheer, and then everyone's quiet. She's like, what are you doing? It's a child. For God's sake. Come on, people! You know, and everyone cheers him. And then she starts using some of his trombone in, in her DJing. It's a fun little thing. Um, but the whole point of the episode is, you know, where Stephanie stands between her life with her family and her life as a party girl and DJ. And then uh, her and and DJ Tanner have a moment at the end of the show where she talks to DJ about uh, the fact that she can't have children. And and they saved it for the end, so they could have a moment, and the whole sh- and the whole episode wouldn't be weighed down with this. Uh, and so I was just curious to see, you know what you thought of that reveal and, and the episode in general, and how it was handled. Again, it gave depth to a character, that, character that, that,
3: in some
2: respects, was lacking, in respects was lacking. It's a good playoff of, play of the first episode when episode, they have the two sisters have, have a conversation two, about oh, well, you know, haven't you ever oh, thought about know, settling down instead of jump, flying around the world? And Stephanie goes to DJ, oh, well, that's boring to me. I mean, no, not, it's not boring. It's perfect for you, but it's it's boring to me.
1: boring
2: And you find out that that was a defense mechanism because she had this horrible thing that she had to deal with where she can't have children even if she wanted to. And it it makes the character a little more vulnerable and human Which they hadn't done really to that
1: point enough of. Yeah, um, I thought Jodie Sweetin was able to shoulder uh, the acting very well in that scene. Yeah, Ken's Cameron's fine. She she was fine throughout the entire series. She was she was pretty solid. But you know, you're asking characters sort of really dig here, dig deep, and say you know as a and I and I you know to tell you what you know. you should feel something when you when you watch TV, whether you know good, bad or indifferent. Uh <clears throat> the visual medium of television and film should bring out feelings. You shouldn't just be watching it numb. And I at least felt like she did a great job with it because I felt bad for her character. You know, I uh I, I as as Winfrey knows from doing movie reviews, I tend to be a little sensitive with this sort of thing. Um and maybe brought brought to feelings maybe easier than some, but I legitimately felt bad for the character. I was like, well, that's terrible, you know, and, and I could see where she was coming from, and it really drew me in, and for that little brief time, you forget it's a television show. So I, I thought they did a good job there, and again, they did it without being very heavy-handed. Yeah, I agree um, with you all the yeah, way. So the last... Now, we're not going to talk too much about Six. Six was an episode that pretty much just focused on Jackson and gave you, you know, because at this point, he, he, he hasn't had a lot of time on screen. He hasn't had a lot to do. Um, he's just sort of there uh, in and amongst the plot. So Six is an episode all for him, uh, which, we get, which we get their version of Lucha Underground, apparently, called Lucha Kaboom. Um, actually, let me skip to this because I do remember this, and I remember I said I've got to talk about this on the podcast because there aren't too many things that are so far out of the realm of reality that took me out of the television show. Again, much like James Bond, you have to suspend your disbelief to a degree. Um, you know, We are talking situational comedy here. But you can go too far, and luckily the series doesn't have a habit of this, but there's something that happens in this episode with DJ and the wrestlers that was so dumb, it was so bad, that I was like – uh, I th- and I remember I was watching it uh, in the middle of the night, and I said, this sounds like a good place to leave this alone and walk away from it, and I'll pick this up another day. <laughs> I, this, it had, I had had enough. <laughs> and that is, um, and somehow or other, Jackson ends up in the ring with the wrestlers, and DJ runs in there and suddenly starts throwing wrestlers hither and thither, and you know, no one calls the cops. <laughs> now, now, I don't know if you've ever seen a fan jump into the ring in you know, a WWF ring, but usually the wrestlers will start kicking said fan in head. Now this particular instance you have DJ Tanner who turns into Kalisto from the WWE <laughs> and is doing Ranas and she does hip tosses and you know, and then she pins one of the wrestlers and of course, oh, she's a hero and they give her a name and everything and sure. And a contract, offer. a contract offer. And a contract offer and i just said all right i've had enough <laughs> we, we this, this was if there was a moment in this series that really jumped the shark this was it for me your thoughts uh
2: i don't really know that i can do it more justice than what you just did uh, it was it was very silly it was over the top not in a good way i i i can't really justify seeing that and, and and just saying, yeah, that, that was good. That was yeah. entertaining. It doesn't, it doesn't go that way with me. Um,
1: um, I there's no way I can, I ima- no I mean, way I can just,
2: say, yeah, that was good. Yeah,
1: I, I have to imagine that that's, to a degree, that's probably our just personal issue because uh, they chose wrestling, um, and maybe if it had been something else, we'd have been less. It would have rubbed us less the wrong way because I kind of imagine that that people who who aren't fans of wrestling at all, don't care. Still think Hulk Hogan is an active wrestler. Um and well he's a bad choice. Still think Randy Savage is alive. Um <laughs> <laughs> saw that and were perfectly okay with it because wrestling is a stupid kid thing anyway, and so why couldn't she run in there and do it? Um but I mean but picture, you know let let let's let's do the same episode but instead of her running into a wrestling ring she runs in and quarterbacks for the you know in the Super Bowl. You know, it was that level of idiocy. Yeah, or or uh, uh, actually if you remember in the
2: original Full House series, had an episode where Danny was doing a sports cast for a heavyweight title fight but he never jumped into the ring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It was it was one of those where I guess the writers thought they could get away with it. You know, wouldn't that be funny to see this dainty girl start throwing men you know men everywhere? But yeah, it uh, it didn't work for me. It was one of the low points of the series. That was gen, which was again generally favorable, generally enjoyable. But I watched that and it it, it wasn't a fast forward moment, moment for me. But it, you know, it wasn't cringeworthy as such. It was more of uh, I don't need to ever revisit I this. To, yeah, I mean I I don't know. If, this particular reference is something you'll agree with because you might have actually liked the show, but it felt a little saved by the bell for me. I was like, oh, come on. What planet are you people on? Um, yeah, I
2: drifted that yeah. more out of the realm.
1: <laughs> so we have uh, about um, 45 minutes uh, left of our live cast here. We are going to end on time, which means we're going to talk for a little, you know, about a half an hour more and then get into plugs and such, um, which means I want to talk about the, the, the final arc of the show um, just sort of talk about the setups and uh, the relationships, which is basically this. So episodes seven through 13 um, is one long story that basically uh, involves DJ and uh, two loves of her life is one track. And then the other track is the on again, off again relationship of uh, Kimmy and Fernando. And um, let, let's 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 break these down and, and talk about them individually. It's why I wanted to save some time for this. Uh, first, you have the uh, help me out here. You're, you're the one with the lockbox for for this sort of detail. You have the boyfriend from the first series who's still interested in her. His name is her. Steve. Right. So you have Steve, the podiatrist, who's still, who they established right from the first episode, still uh, heart aches for her, and they have become friends, but uh, he wants them to be more than that. On the other side, you have another character who is introduced uh, somewhere in the middle of the series who is the son of the uh, veterinary clinic's owner, and him and DJ start to re- form a relationship. Where this goes is uh, you have both men competing for DJ, and DJ not being able to decide uh, which one of them she should uh, exclusively date. Which does
2: bring And as the we question, speak, my yeah. my roommate
1: has turned on full, Fuller House. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it brings it does bring the question: Should she even be dating exclusively? Um a couple of things going on here. You have you have a recently widowed woman with three children deciding to get back into the dating game and the first question asked is well how soon is too soon to get back into dating when you know when you are a single mom and you've just lost your husband.
2: Um, yeah, not not a divorce situation, a widowed situation.
1: Right. And then how long you know into dating should you settle down and try to find a one on one relationship? And I was like, huh, they could have played this really stupid. And in some instances, it gets a little silly. Uh, aforementioned uh, Bugs Bunny man on man kiss that, that was talked about. But for the most part, I thought they played it pretty straight. And I thought, you know, here you have a modern quandary for for the single mom. When do you date? And then when do you become serious? When do you have these people involved with your children? What you know, and and they were not so dissimilar um, that it was like oh she could go with the bad boy or she could no it was they were I would say they were cut from similar cloth they just presented different uh, positive qualities to her so it really became a matter of you know what does your heart say so let's let's start there as far as the, you know the next uh, seven episodes or so starting with Ramona's uh, not so epic party. What did you think of that whole storyline with uh, DJ and the the two betrothed men?
2: I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Because here's the thing. You're, again, tipping your hat to the original series where a lot of people were upset in the original series with the way they broke Steve and DJ up, where it kind of was never built to at any point. It, it all happened within a self-contained episode where DJ decided she and Steve were just not on the same page anymore. And she took a rock climbing trip and decided that's where she needs to break up with Steve. And then you don't see him again until about a uh, year later in the series finale at that time when he shows up with her last minute prom date.
1: So you're Which tipping they
2: your hat to acknowledge it. They show you a
1: flashback yeah. of that. isn't yeah. that?
2: Well, they show you they show well, you they, his prom, they, they, not her prom.
1: Okay. But, oh, well, again, well, though, they're, they're well, showing
2: the past because they've gone to two proms together, and I don't know what else, else is more serious. What's true? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, well, with the introduction of that, <laughs> you're showing a very real scenario where maybe you're not going to be back in love with so your first parents, love, especially after you've already but both been married. married. You're presenting her with somebody new who offers a lot of positive qualities, maybe not diametrically opposite like what you talked about, but similar enough but different enough enough where where she could see herself with either guy, and you're not being corny by immediately having her reunite with her first love from the original show
1: and building no tension and having it
2: be boring. boring.
1: I did like the fact that they acknowledged that, especially towards the spoiler alert, at the end of the show that she chose herself and that she said, you know what? I'm not ready to be in a one-on-one relationship, but God's sakes, it's been, you know, one transition after another. I'll I'll say this about that. I groaned when
2: she said (laughs) that because I also grew up on (laughs) a TV show called Beverly Hills 90210. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where the catchphrase, I choose me, became <laughs> very popular because very of a choice where the main female lead, Hailey <laughs> Taylor, couldn't but choose between couldn't the two male leads, Jason yeah. Priestley and, Jason uh, yeah. oh uh, gosh, help me, Luke oh, Perry. Gosh, help me, Perry. And she said, I've made my choice and, and I choose I, me. I love you both and I'm sorry.
1: Right. I actually remember that now that you've mentioned it. Um, okay. I, I get the choice of words making you groan. Uh, But I thought, I thought, look, my my heart goes out to any woman who's struggling out there, you know, being a single mom and everything and trying to figure out, especially how weird this freaking world is, you know, with, I I don't want to go off on a tangent, but let's just say dating can be very dicey, uh, especially when you have kids, especially when you have daughters. I'm going to leave it at that. So uh, (laughs) to see... To see someone struggling with that, without even getting into the heavy stuff that I just alluded to, uh, I thought it was nice, and I thought, you know, and I'm glad they didn't make her choose one of the guys. I'm glad. I'm glad they, I it was funny because I was just like, God, she she has a choice between, you know, dark chocolate and and milk chocolate. There's still fucking chocolate here. I don't, you know, what what, what are we choosing between? Um, but um, in the end, I thought that was a good dramatic uh, dramatic decision because, <clears throat> you know, they were going with. I choose, you know, the I choose me part of it, you know, and saying, hey, stop trying to force this woman into a relationship she's not ready for. Well, good for you and good for the right. Agreed so on that. that. Yeah, you, know, you don't have to it's be the choice a of words about it. Okay, so that's, that's, that's fair. Um, as far as the, the, the guys playing the roles are concerned, uh, at first, I thought Steve was a little too on the Urkelish side. You know, a little too Johnny One Note, you know, oh, I'm so ronery, you know, that sort of thing. Um, when he goes on the date with her and it starts to and it starts to go badly and eventually just, you know, they I think it's DJ who says, Let's just stop being on a date and just be together and you know, and he's wrestling with the kids and you know, and this is when they do the whole bit with uh, <laughs> with Fernando and Kimmy and the and, and the eagle. Um, you know, I actually like that. I actually like the character in that I got to like the character in that uh, episode because up to that point, I was completely team the other guy. Um, well,
2: and that was, you, well, know, it not, was you know, it was a very organic
1: way to like him because to, nobody's really connecting with him.
2: <laughs> even people who love the old show and liked him in the role of DJ's boyfriend, <laughs> he's not bringing anything to the he's table not, in this. He's saying, Hey, look, I'm single. You're he's, single. We're just two of us talking about being well, single. Well, and he's a one like note
1: joke. Right, But then when he actually you know, develops, personality,
2: he develops and personality and starts playing with the kids, right. and, and it becomes and a
1: very organic, organic thing, and you say, oh, this is why I like oh, Steve in the first
2: place. place.
1: Right, And you, know, and you, as a, and you as, a, as a viewer, look at him, and you go, oh, well, I could see him with her now. Because up to that episode, I don't know about you, but I couldn't. Because he kept doing the same joke. You know, it, it, you know, he walks in and he was like, oh, you hunky man, you, and I hope you go back to Miami, and yeah, I'm like, that sort of shit. And when she originally, and when they originally figure out that she's dating them both, but, you know, without the other one knowing him, he's like, well, I don't want to be in a relationship, you know, contest, and walks out the door, and the other guy walks out, and he runs back and he goes, ha we've lost him. <laughs> Just kidding, everyone. Like, oh, you dork. You know, <laughs> like I at that point, I'm rooting for her to dump him because it's like, no, you floppy bastard, you don't. You you don't deserve DJ grow grow a penis for God's sake, and then he does. <laughs> you know he he absolutely becomes a a full fledged you know character in that episode to where you you have sympathy towards him and you're at the end when when she's giving out the final rose which I thought was hilarious. Like I'm not a fan of the Bachelor or the Bachelorette because you know again penis, but for God's sake I thought that was funny. To so at least parody you know, a show that has such a, that has that been such a cornerstone of the American television culture. I thought I was like, ah, good on you guys for, uh, for mocking it. Um, but I actually was, I was, there was that some degree of dramatic tension there where you just, you don't want to see the guy get hurt now because you actually start to like him. Um, the other one I never not liked, you know, he, uh, I just, just the, my only thing with him was, from a dramatic standpoint of view, was he falls for her a little too fast. But again, he isn't the one who ran the speed of light across the veterinary clinic to jump into her arms. That would be DJ. So, I was like, hey, all right, whatever. And
2: I, I don't even think and that I, was such an out-of-character thing for them to show, because this is a woman who's lost her <laughs> husband. She's been alone for X amount of time. Uh, She's going to get urges. It's going to happen. And, and you're sitting across from supermodel, put myself through medical school while modeling underwear guy.
1: Really? She's not going to really dive into arms like that? No, no. I, I have no problem with her doing it. I said he felt for her too fast was, was my thought.
0: I, I, well, you know, I could see that
2: too. But at the same time, <laughs> he's alone in the city as they establish. He only, he doesn't really have friends or anything like that there. It's just him and his dad who he's taking over for initially on a temporary basis. And he meets this really well-adjusted, really pretty girl. Who's extremely nice to him. The intensity level maybe, but there are people who I've seen who did stupider things
1: than that. No, no, no argument there. Um, Let's transition over to Kimmy and good old Fernando. Your favorite part of the show. Oh so, uh, yeah. So Fernando who in the first 6 episodes is only mildly annoying, you know, I, I, again, he's kind of the Kramer of the show the way that he's presented, he just sort of slides in. "Hello, Jerry." You know, only, Kimber- you know <laughs> <laughs> only with a Hispanic accent. <laughs> you know, that's more or less what he's doing. He becomes a major major character from Ramona's birthday on, um, because him and, and Kimmy starts to reform a relationship, and now to, to to again, what broke them up in the first place was he uh, he cheated on her, and you know at that point she was like, I can't do this with you anymore, um, and so she left him, and he has no arc. He is he starts off with basically I'm in I am a uh, an impulsive dog. I can't control my urges, and you can only, you know. And I'm just in my. I know this doesn't happen, but in my mind, I hear him saying, "I can't stop loving women, putting a rose in his mouth, and cha chaing across the floor." That's that's that's, that's <laughs> my instinct. yeah just, if someone were to write character, Latin lover, that's that's the image I've got of him, um, and that's and that's all he is for the for the most part. And then suddenly he goes from that to I want to try harder to be a good man and to be good to you and to reunite this family. And I'm like, what the fuck happened in the first six episodes that created this for you? And and I don't even see anything in that episode itself. She's nagging him about the cake. The the party itself sort of goes off the deep end, you know, when they lose the electricity and stuff like that. And it it appears everything else just appears to be very – much physical. Like, I don't see it changing him as a character, as such. And then from that point on, he's just trying to win her back. And I'm like, I, I. It was the only failure of writing. I was like, they wrote the DJ thing really, really well. And then the Kimmy thing, I was like, this just feels forced. And they The only why that I, that thought, Well, hang on. The only reason why it didn't completely like, annoy me was because Andrea Barber held up her end of that. And she played off him really well. And, you know, and then they would bring, they would periodically bring Ramona in in the hopes, oh, I hope my parents get back together. And that drew me in. But him as a character with nothing going on around him that makes him do the things that he was doing annoyed the shit out of me. Okay, now
2: I'm done. I I think they, like, you know, in their heads had it where. DJ's arc is, DJs you know, primary, which is no should be. And they put so much effort into they, that that they, they were, were looking around at other things to do. And they were like, hey, and they were, you know what? Let's just make you know them what? try to get back <laughs> together.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And throw something at the yeah. wall and see what sticks. <laughs> and what you find in these and scenes, really, like you pointed out to, is that exactly. Andrea Barber is a really talented actress. Uh, actress yes and she does and so she well, does with, so this, well. With, with, with with what do i even call what him but I, this this overly this, ethnic this, this lump, lump. <laughs> <laughs> Just. And just works around him and dances around him the way a master professional wrestler, as we alluded to before, can take a really awful professional wrestler that they're wrestling against and make a match watchable just through their own abilities. And that's kind of what Andrea Barber does here. She does a a carry job, as we would call it, of taking this arc and these scenes and throwing them on her back and saying, this is on me, I'm going to make them work. And I'll be damned if she doesn't do as as well as anybody could possibly do with this useless, uh, stereotype that she's paired
1: with. And
2: I was
1: thinking as you're talking, I'm going to start referring to him now as Fandango.
2: No, cause Fandango had a purpose.
1: <laughs> okay. Fair but enough. He's
2: just, he's just awful. And Andrea Barber, who has never gotten to show this type of, uh, acting ability is finally getting, uh, uh, presentation that is all her and she's knocking it out of the park as far as I'm concerned, but she's stuck with this this useless lump that she's just going to have back pains for the rest of her life for having to carry, and I think they just thought with the arc at a certain point, wow, she's doing really well in these scenes, we need to give her more to play off of, so they kind of just uh, they don't necessarily totally drop it, because even as early as the third episode, they're making allusions to Fernando really legitimately having feelings and love for Kimmy. He doesn't want to compete in a dance contest all the way against her. When DJ tells him, you're going to break her heart again tonight because he's dancing with the other woman that he picked up and he pulls himself out, citing a toe cramp. And you see, there's some inkling there that he really does care about Kimberly. He's just an animal who can't control his impulses like you alluded to, but they don't ever really strengthen that at any point. They just kind of just veer completely in the opposite direction and say, well, we're going to have him stop cheating and just try to win Kimber, Kim, uh, Kimmy back. And then at a certain point, you know, maybe in season two, you'll find out he was cheating on it the whole time or what have you. But they, they don't really do much of a good job in the writing aspect of pulling that whole uh, storyline together. The only real bright spot is you get to see Andrea Barber really give a strong performance. And I was really shocked and impressed by it.
1: One of the things she does really well, uh, Andrea Barber, she acts very well with her face. Now – a, a, a lot of the cast does that. Um, there, uh, you know, especially Elias Harger, who, when he isn't screaming at the top of his lungs into the camera, um, is doing a lot with his face. And it's, you know, it's, it's, he's overacting, but this, the show, almost, the character almost calls for it at times. So, you know, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it, as the judge says, I'll allow it. Um, but she, more so, I think than anybody else in the cast, uses her face very well. Um, she does a lot of movement of her jaw and her eyes, and there's a lot. There's a lot of, um, and this is very much in traditional sitcom uh, camera direction. But the, you know, you you sort of say your line, you pause for laughter, and then there's another pause there to, you know, to sh- show your face. And some people handle it better than others. I could watch her move her her mouth and you know her jaw and everything like for an hour. Because between that and and the movement of her eyes and, you know, and how she sort of wiggles her hips at times, I was like, wow, she's really good. You know, I mean, she's not doing Shakespeare in the park, don't get me wrong here, but I would say for what the medium calls for, she's got it. I would cast her in any situational comedy now, because I really feel like she captured in essence what you want. You want an actor to sort of act through the camera without screaming through it, you know, without tearing up the scenery, and I think she she does that very well. She's she's in no way understated, but she also she also isn't overacting either. And I would actually say that for almost the entire cast, no one really overacts in this show. Um, everybody has a level of uh, has a has a level uh, where, where they're they're keeping it somewhat grounded. And except for you, the, Fernando. Except, except, for you, except for Fernando. Um, where the show was was imminently watchable. Like I watched the show uh, New Girl, and I like whatever you think about it. I like New Girl. I laugh at it. Um, but there are times where the characters do something, and I have to fast forward through it because it's so ridiculous. Like I, I like it, it's beyond nails on a chalkboard. Um, you know uh, what the word everyone uses? Cringeworthy TV. It, it goes like beyond that. Like I don't understand how how people act this way. There's not that much. I was a, I was fearful going into Fuller House. There was going to be a lot of that, and I was going to have to fast forward through a lot of this. I don't. I think I only went. There was only one thing, and it was with the kids, where I was like, "Oh, this is almost unwatchable." Um, and it was it was the M and M's bit, which the only thing that I thought was even mildly amusing about that was after Elias Harder Max eats the entire bowl of M <laughs> and M's, he's running around the house. Um, but. The uh, but the exchanges between uh, Jackson and Lola and all that I was like I gotta fast forward this this is I can't watch it, um, but generally speaking to the 13 episodes of Full of House everyone keeps the performances in front of the camera and they're not all over the fucking place making the whole thing unwatchable which you know kudos to the director and the actors. Uh, getting back to Kimmy and Fernando, it's, it's interesting that <clears throat> excuse me. It's interesting that they went the route of the double wedding at the end, though, almost cliched. It's kind of one of the last things I want to say about this, and then we'll we'll do some final words and such, and we'll play my favorite game, What Did The Critics Say? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but just thoughts on that. They, um, they used it almost as a setup for DJ to do her thing at the end, but, boy, they spend a lot of time on... Uh, the build-up to the double wedding and then the, you know, and then her decision to just be in, spoiler alert, to just be engaged to him for however long and not rush back into a relationship with him for a myriad of reasons, you know, not wanting to go on tour and all of that. Um, I just, I thought it was not odd, just through, it, it threw me that it was almost like you said about Stephanie. It was, it was like they, you know, or you know what you had said before about uh, about the Kimmy character as as they're writing it and shooting episodes are going hey she's good we should do more with her and it's like you know and, 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 and you're just pitching ideas and like and you get to like let's have a wedding it's like well, how did we get here why why, why are we focusing on this so, like, <laughs> my beautiful well, this house. is not <laughs> this is not my beautiful house um i would say the i would say the choice to go that route was questionable but not necessarily bad. Uh so your thoughts there on the on the finale and the and the whole wedding and all of that, and then I think we're gonna we're gonna change gears here. Yeah, I mean the yeah the, the whole wedding
2: episode, it's, the episode they came out very know, very I I don't even know I, that how to describe it. how to try where it should have where it should have and didn't really and serve an overall really purpose other than for cheap horny laughs.
3: Right.
2: Um, the the uh, uh, Again, yeah, getting back to the yeah, DJ Matt, the day, Steve, Triangle, Steve
3: Triangle.
2: That was handled well. The yeah, setup of the well, episode with both know, of them, of course, ending up that, there as course, that, her that, date that, was that, very,
1: very well done. Very, yeah. Because it was predictable, yeah. but it didn't bother me. Yes, well, make note, TNA writers, predictable is sometimes very good. When handled right, and that was handled right. The
2: Kimmy and Fernando stuff, uh, uh, we keep harping on it, but it really was the Andrea Barber showcase. Because despite (laughs) poor, rushed writing, bad, overly ethnically stereotyped acting, she shines through like a light. And if nothing else, both her and the girl playing Ramona – Surprisingly yeah, really beyond expectations for a child actor. Um uh, you know, the the actor playing uh Jackson, Michael Campion, I believe is his name, he yeah. he's he's much more in the typical vein of a thirteen year old boy, and that's fine. <laughs> he's not
1: overplaying Daddy, anything. I was just just a quick review of the kids. Uh Michael Campion is adequate. He's exactly what you want that character to be. Nothing more, nothing less. Elias Parker spent the first half of the season screaming at the camera and the second half making I'm adorable faces, and I'm fine with it. That's the character. But the real star among the kids and the character I want more of in the second season is Sonny Nicole Bringness. I would actually love just – we could lose the whole Full House cast and just do a show about Kimmy and, and Ramona, and I would be perfectly happy. And the baby was cute. (laughs) <laughs> what
2: do you say <laughs> baby? Yeah, there's not much else you can say. The kid's kind of deformed, but I uh, in a cute way, almost like those dogs, you know, the the really ugly ones that are ugly cute. That's the kid. No, um, oh, don't. He's a baby. Stop. Or they are babies. Yeah, well, Stop. I'm not saying he's going to be an ugly kid for the rest of his life. He could turn out to be the next Chris Hemsworth for all I know, and he certainly has the size to become six four and two hundred and twenty pounds. But um <laughs> it's a chunky boy. Yeah, but but no, Ramona's character is really, she goes from being the annoying, loud girl from episode one, where I think they were trying to initially paint her as just a rehash of Kimmy's character. And they find out, you know what, there is a lot to this girl that we can take advantage of that maybe we didn't do the first time around with Andrea. So let's try to expand this. And you get a much more realistic character. You get a likable character who has to convey a lot of uh, things that, you know, I know I had to deal with as a kid when your parents aren't together and you have to transfer schools X amount of times and make new friends from scratch. And there's maybe you, your mom and dad went out to get pizza while they were separated or divorced. And you're like, man, maybe this can be something, please let this be something. Or at least if I have to have a birthday party, let them coexist for one day without one blaming the other for everything going wrong. And she does it really well. She doesn't ham it up. She doesn't come up with these needless tears and scenes. And I want to say that the three child actors in uh, Michael Campion, Sonny Nicole Braga, and uh, forgive me, I forget Max's actual name, but um, they're All ahead right. of the curve. Mm-hmm. Elias Harger. They're ahead of the acting curve when you compare them to Candace Cameron, Andrea Barber, and Jody Sweeten at their respective ages at that time in the development of the show. And I think that that means a lot more promise for Fuller House than initially expected despite what critics will tell you because the show is going to be geared toward focusing on those kids more and more and less on the cameos from John Stamos and Bob Saget and Dave Coulier where it's going to evolve into a show with its own identity that has a past and I think that's a really promising thing to see.
1: Agreed um, I, and I tell you as those three get older I'll, be, I'll definitely become more interested in the show and interested in them um, as we start to take away some of the focus on the adults, uh, because they're such strong actors. Again, with Sonny Nicole Br- Bringus being by far the strongest among the three. Um, I'm not counting the baby. <laughs> so, all right, let's let's wrap here on the series, uh, and, and again, get into my favorite theme, What did the critics say? <laughs> uh, overall, as, as I said, I liked it a lot. Um, I was interested from from the first second really second episode on that first episode was, was a bit of a struggle. Um, I think I remember watching full house when I was 11 through 18 or 19, uh, however old I was in 1995. And, um, but I was definitely 11 in 1987. I've done the math now. Um, and I, you know, it was, I was amused as a kid, as an adult and somebody who is now, you know, training himself to sort of analyze this stuff for purposes of review, I think I enjoyed this one a lot more um, because it was I wasn't just passively watching; I was actively thinking about the characters and the plots and and all you know and how it was shot and all of that. And there was a lot there for me to there was a lot of meat for me to sink into, um, as opposed to some other stuff where. There's just nothing there, and it's all fluff and nonsense, and I can't really get into it. So uh, I really I enjoyed Fuller House. I'm glad it got renewed for a second season, and I really applaud Netflix for, to one degree or another, so taking chances on, on some of these intellectual properties and you know throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. You know, and this this one stuck. Give me uh you 50 words here on uh, on your thoughts on this thing. I think this is hopefully the larger
2: start of rather than rehashing old ideas and repackaging them because we're out of ideas. Take things that we loved from the past, pay homage to them and modernize them, and do it in a way that doesn't insult the audience's intelligence, which is the one area where girl meets world falls short. I think that was the prototype. I think this is the finished product, and
1: I hope things stay in this direction. It's a really good point, Pat. Okay, so I've been saving this one all all, <laughs> all show, okay? I read it on Rotten Tomatoes. This comes from the Doe Morona from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And this was actually, <laughs> this was a fresh review, okay? Not certified fresh. No, no, not at 32%, my loves. But uh, this one was fresh. And uh, it says here, the show exists. Solely for the fans, a throwback sitcom that is unapologetically corny, Corny. silly, performing, full of innuendo, often cringeworthy, and make no mistake about it, fully in on the joke. And uh, I'm reading it for that last part, that fully in on the joke, because there's a lot of, as I said at the top, there's a lot of, like, four... I shouldn't say a lot. There's there's plenty of fourth wall breaking and and, and inside jokes about the series itself and the characters themselves that gave me a laugh um, despite myself. And I'm glad the show isn't taking itself too seriously. Seriously enough that there's quality here, but not so seriously that it can't poke fun in itself every once in a while and have some fun. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Yeah, a um, fair assessment. Um, we can
2: look at a show that wants to show, be goofy uh, five, minutes ago, five minutes ago, and then now ago. in the present they're bringing some issue to you like cancer or abortion or something horrible. And there's no balance to it. And the show has no flow, um, and you tune out because you don't care.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, instead of, no, this comes from Screen Rant, Molly Friedman. Instead of giving viewers something new with the same spirit of the beloved original, the Fuller House series premiere attempts tongue-in-cheek nostalgia that does not land and ultimately comes off as more insulting than cheeky. I wish Molly had watched the whole thing and not just the first episode. Yeah, she clearly just watched the first episode, and even that criticism is a little bit harsh.
3: Well, if you like that
1: one, then you love this from Tim Sherrod of TV.com. Fuller House is sugary garbage. That might drive you to madness if you watch enough of it, which is to say it honors its predecessor incredibly well. So he he's not a fan so of the original
2: show a and went into a Fuller <laughs> House and watched it and for some reason thought he would be a fan of a continuation of the show he didn't like in the first place.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. <laughs> All right, and this last one comes from the Los Angeles Times. I don't mind reading too many of these, but our uh, last one here from the Los Angeles Times is also a fresh review. You would, uh, you, At least that's what it says here. As revivals go, <laughs> it's more than usually successful and true to the spirit of its predecessor. Uh, and there are lovely performances from the new adults in the room, Sweeten especially. Well, there you go. Hey, it's a Does fresh review. It's <laughs> somebody with a positive thing to say. <laughs> So we're going to end on a negative one. (laughs) From New York Magazine, slash Vulture, Margaret Lyons has this to say. She's a top critic on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Fuller House's great achievement is that it is not the absolute worst show in history. That cannot possibly be a reason enough to make something. Oh, oh, you have no idea, madam. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, just uh, kind of going over the Rotten Tomato scores here. 32% Rotten. But the audience loved it. I, I I don't have it pulled up just yet. But, um, yeah, Listen, 79% The it. The original,
0: the, the,
2: the, the 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 average, original Full the House, House
1: series is, with 380 people uh, rating this thing. So what you have is you, your typical, this isn't anything the critics are going to really get into, but it wasn't meant for them. It was meant for fans. It was meant for your casual viewing audience, and the casual viewing audience ate it up. The
2: original series, the, Full House mm-hmm. Never achieves critical Not acclaim. Critical. It was, it was on as hard on is horrible from day one a bad t v version of Three Men and a Baby is what the original reviews were with, 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 They were harsh on the kids they were, they were harsh on they Coulier. Were, they were harsh on Saget. I, they, they were, they they were, were calling Stamos just a pretty boy who should have stayed at soap operas, and yet the show was an unequivocal hit.
1: Yeah, it uh, it anchored a lot of the um, the Friday night viewings. There, you know, once it they got used to air it, They news. used to
2: air it twice a week on Tuesday night at eight PM and Friday night at eight PM, which yeah. were important time slots yeah. at that point in time. Yep. All
1: right, I think uh, that's as good as it's going to get here. Um, we have about ten minutes left. That's that's plenty long enough for us to plug. plugs. So, Pat, buckle in. Because we've had someone uh, who's been waiting, I think, to talk to us all night here. I think I know who this is. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring on a caller, and then we'll do plugs, and then we'll get out of here. So uh, thank you for being patient. Area code 818, you are on with our review of Fuller House.
0: Good evening, Mark. Good Good evening, Pat. This has been a wonderful show and trip down memory lane. So thank you very much. As a kid... As good. who grew up watching, mm-hmm. you know, TGIF, you know, yeah. TGIF was much yeah. more TV for me. I mm-hmm. like how you guys yeah. are just family, and yeah. I think fairly uh, talking about Fuller House. And I just want and to give a shout-out to Andrea Barber, because I'm just, I'm, I just cannot believe just the way she just dives into this character again. And... and it's it's surreal because she's still Kimmy, but she's learned a few things. Like, I thought the most brilliant bit she did, when she grabbed her daughter's phone and, like, threw it in the house, said, well, if you want your phone and you aren't ever going to step on there, and get your phone. I thought that was brilliant. And I think the critics who are bashing this show, bashing it like
4: the original funny.
0: Full House was so much better, I mean, to me, they're the I exact same show. Just uh, A little time has passed. kids are a little older. It's the same show to me. It's the same character. And I feel you guys have done a great job of breaking it down. So thank you very much, guys.
1: All right. Thank you for the kind words, Jeff. Thanks for your insight. I uh, always appreciate it. Um, you only got a little smidgen of Jeff there, but you can check out Jeff's great movie reviews on 401mania.com in the movie review section. Uh, he's also, I believe, still a contributor to the MMA Zone. So that's Jeff Harris. Uh, From Bowenmania.com. Thanks for calling in, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Thank
1: you. Okay, Um, let's get into plugs. Pat, go ahead and uh, talk about your thing.
2: Well, my most recent thing is a
1: show hosted by
2: Gavin Napier.
1: Napier.
2: It is called Bunkhouse Stampede Radio. You can hear it on Gavin's blog talk station. You can find links to it at thecasualheroes.com, where Mark and I are frequent contributors to the WrestleCast, WrestleCast. which we record on a semi-regular basis. You can find us occasionally on a show called the Championship Rounds, which is a boxing based show. So be on the lookout for a new episode of that coming up. We will talk about the farce, farce that is Con farce. versus Canelo and all the other goodies around other the boxing, boxing world happening. World.
1: We'll also syndicate that show here on the Rattlers Broadcasting Network once it ever gets recorded and published. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says so syndicate. He what he done. really means is steal. Steal, syndicate, Fuck. We're living in the Trump revolution, baby. Words don't mean anything. In any case, Don't I uh, yes, I do. Don't I... <laughs> I do occasionally appear on the Casual Heroes Wrestlecast. Um, the most recent one uh, I have syndicated here on—I did that in air quotes, by the way—here <laughs> uh, on the Friendless Broadcasting Network, uh, which features a pretty picture of Alicia Fox dousing herself in orange soda. One of the best nights in the history of professional wrestling, I tell you. Um, <laughs> We talked about the most surprising modern vets in the history of the WWE. We talked about the return of Shane O'Mac. So go ahead and give that a listen. Two thousand six. Yeah, two thousand six. Our most recent addition to the lineup of great shows here on the Rattle of Broadcasting Network is the Every Joe Podcast, featuring former Freak Boy uh, John Brodigan, and he's been wrapping up the most recent presidential primaries, giving you that uh, that GOP talk that you all know and love. So go ahead and check that out in the archives. That's the Every Joe Podcast featuring John Brodigan. Um, Of course, uh, you know, you, every Sunday we've got the MMA show with Robert Winfrey. Every Monday, which this past Monday, uh, I was on Jesse Starcher's source material talking about future the uh, Hulk storyline, Future Imperfect. Um, last week, we had a good series of shows here um, – We did A Long Road to Ruin, the Beverly Hills Cop Trilogy. We've got reviews of Deadpool, Pride, Tragedy, and Zombies, and Kung Fu Panda in the archives. We've done A Metal Hammer of Doom, Advantasia, Ghost Lights, and also A Long Road to Ruin, the Shaft Trilogy, which you can also hear Pat on if you enjoyed him tonight. There's more of him for you. Tomorrow night on The Metal Hammer of Doom, we will be reviewing uh, an album from Thrash Kings Anthrax for All Kings. It came out last week. It's a great album. Uh, I, didn't like it. Then, I didn't like it. You didn't like it? No, no. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, this Tuesday, now this is this just this just in, ladies and gentlemen. We uh, we got a new show, kind of. I don't know how often I'm going to be doing it. The, my co-host not dependable, but, <laughs> but I do love her. <laughs> the new Sister Hazel uh, came out somewhere in the middle of February and apparently they went full country on this one. They even went as far as to bring in Darius Rucker. So, uh, once I told my wife that, hey, you know, if we ever get the numbers up on the Radlinson Broadcasting Network, we'll actually start to see some ad revenue checks come in, uh, you know, sooner than every six months. And she went, oh, in that case, sign me up to help. So, so, <laughs> uh, oh, so, yeah, that's me. Actually, um, with a dollar bill sign, y'all. Um, so, Melissa, my lovely wife, will be appearing on the first ever Country Washboard of Jubilation. Yes, you've heard of the Metal Hammer of Doom. Well, this is the Country Washboard of Jubilation, and our very first album, country album review will be Sister Hazel. Uh, and I'll be doing that with just uh, my wife. So, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, the next night, we'll be reviewing London Has Fallen. That's uh Rob Winfrey will be back. We'll be reviewing that movie. Um, it currently stinks on <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes. That's have got something like a 13 or 18 score or some shit. Yeah, not... That's not, house That it. doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Thursday is the Metal Hammer of Doom proper. And uh, we had to reverse a few things. Um, but uh, this is our annual cover show. Jesse Starcher will be guesting. We'll be guessing. We'll, begin, we'll be playing some twenty odd covers between myself, Cooper, and Jesse Starcher. And we're titling this one Army versus Navy. Okay. We promised we'd do it last year when both of us had a covers of In the Army and uh and and uh what do you call it, the Navy one that I'm doing? In the Navy. In the Navy. <laughs> in, the Army, in the Army, in the Navy. Uh so we decided covers three, Army versus Navy. Every one of our cover shows that we've done so far have been hilarious. A lot of fun was had. So we hope this one lives up to, uh, li- lives up to the history of it. So that's 10.30 on Thursday. Uh, on the 16th, review of Zootopia, Disney's new animated feature that isn't a musical. And then Long Road to Ruin will be back with our review of the Madagascar trilogy, or as I'm calling it, Reference, the animated motion picture.
3: Mark, I found uh, your next review.
1: Mark, next What's that?
2: I'm on Netflix, and there's something called Marvel Superhero Adventures Frostbite. I saw that. In this Christmas-themed special, Captain America and the Avengers battle Loki and Ymir who plot to steal Santa Claus's powers and conquer the world.
1: Oh, that's hilarious. I mean, we may have to do that in December. Uh, real quick, I just want to wrap this up. Um, March 23rd, we'll be reviewing Daredevil Season 2 featuring two new characters, the Punisher and Elektra. March 24th is uh, the special Robert Winfrey and I are doing an in-defense of Man of Steel. And then the next night, Ugh. while I'm at Batman vs Superman, Gavin Napier and Pat will be taking over the Rattletch uh, the hostile takeover, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Gavin Napier and Pat Mullen will be taking over the Rattletch in, stu- in broadcasting studios and bringing you the case against Man of Steel. Then we'll review Batman vs. Superman on March 30th, and in celebration of all things DC on March 31st, uh, we'll be on Long Road to Ruin, we'll be reviewing the animated Dark Knight Returns Part 1 and Part 2. And then I'm off to WrestleMania. So that's enough plugs for now. Uh, Pat, it's uh, as usual, you are a gentleman and a scholar, and it was a pleasure having you on tonight's show. Well, thank you so much, Mark. What I thoroughly enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed myself. I hope so. Hope to have you on again soon when something tickles your fancy. Uh, in the meantime, to all of you who deign to listen to us tonight and who have downloaded us later on, I thank you. Be well, be safe, and behave.